0: Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. really appreciate the warm welcome. Just the whole day, I've uh, really felt uh, welcomed here at Soul City, so thank you for your pastoral staff and the, and the leaders here um, for the chance to share uh, this evening with you and to sh- uh, speak from God's Word. Um, as was mentioned, I uh, teach at North Park Theological Seminary. I've been on the faculty there for the last six years, Uh, Prior to that, I was a a church planter and pastor in the Boston-Cambridge area, uh, where back in 1996, my wife and I started a multi-ethnic, urban, uh, social justice-oriented church in the heart of uh, Cambridge and Boston. Um, So I moved to Chicago to uh, enter more into the academic realm. So uh, for the last six years, I've been teaching and doing some writing as well. I've written a couple of books Uh, Looking at things like justice issues, reconciliation issues, especially uh, focusing on areas of diversity and the ways that the world is changing around us and the way the church is changing around us. Uh, So I'm I'm working right now on a commentary. A commentary is just uh, reflections by uh, theologians or scholars on particular books of the Bible. And I'm working on a commentary on the book of Lamentations. How many of you have read the book of Lamentations in its entirety? Fantastic. Fantastic. Again, in the first service, I think it was one person, in the second service, there were like 10 people, there's about 10 people here today. It's not one of those books that people read about or are as familiar with. And in fact, as someone who shifted more into the academic world, and part of the ambition of academics is to sell as few books as possible. The, the less books you sell, the more academic you are, apparently, in kind of the published world. So I'm trying to sell as few books as possible by doing a book on a book that nobody's really ever heard of, the Book of Lamentations. Uh, interesting thing about the Book of Lamentations, uh, if you look at the liturgical traditions, some of the more historical traditional churches that kind of give you the readings and what you're supposed to read for that week, many of them leave out the Book of Lamentations altogether. They say, read the fun psalms and the fun passages, but don't read the Book of Lamentation; It will just depress you. So we're going to examine the Book of Lamentations today. It's, uh, it's not the easiest book to look at, but there's so much in there that I think in our way of engaging with the culture, and the way American society is right now, it is a very important uh, element for us to, to, uh, to discuss. Uh, one of the ways that I've engaged on this, and what sp- sparked my interest in a book like The Book of Lamentations, is about a year and a half ago, uh, about a year ago, uh, I was able to get a sabbatical from my, my school and take a year off. And so I took my whole family, moved down to Durham, North Carolina, to spend a year studying at Duke University. And then afterwards, uh, after a year away, we came back, back to Chicago, and I went back to my office at the the school, and there was a stack of mail about yay high. You know what it is if you're away for just a couple of days from your office, how much mail gets accumulated. I had a stack of mail this high. So I'm spending my first day back at the office leafing through the stuff, trying to sort through the junk mail and the mail I need to keep. And then I stumble across this very interesting piece of mail. It was actually a DVD in a little package. And the cover of the DVD said, The poor you will not have with you. Now, as a seminary professor, I'm always intrigued when people kind of play around with Scripture. So I wanted to figure out what was going on in this DVD. So I open it up, and I'm exploring, well, what's this DVD saying? It says, the poor you will not have with you, but the Bible actually says something different. The poor you will have with you is the phrase that we see in the Scripture. The DVD and the accompanying material was trying to claim that the American church, the Western church, was going to solve the problem of poverty within this generation. Now, please don't get me wrong. I believe that poverty is an an evil. It's an injustice that needs to be addressed. But what I took exception with in this DVD was the assumption that the American church was going to solve this particular problem. There was this very strong kind of triumphalistic, uh, almost an arrogant sense of if we just put our minds to it, if we just think hard enough or apply our intellectual reasoning and abilities long enough, we'll be able to solve any problem. And it's the same thing whether it is a mathematical equation, or the problems of church growth, or the problem of global poverty. If the American church would just simply think about it and work on the problem long enough, we will be able to solve that problem. And what I sense in that kind of statement And what I sense in kind of the American ethos and the American church ethos in general is a bit of an arrogance, a lack of humility that says, if we just work hard enough, we'll be able to take care of the problem. There's an absence of humility. And I would argue there is an absence of lament. And that's why I want us to take a look at the book of Lamentations and explore how does the book of Lamentations challenge our, uh, uh, our arrogance? Our uh, suppositions that we are going to be the problem solvers of, of the world. Um, let me give you a little bit of a background by first looking at Lamentations chapter 2, verses 7 and following. The Lord has rejected His altar and abandoned His sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised the shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. The Lord determined to tear down the wall around daughter Zion. He stretched out a measuring line and did not withhold his hand from destroying. He made ramparts and walls lament. Together they wasted away. By the way, if you want to follow along in your Bibles that are right there in the blue Bibles in front of you, that's page 570 of the Bibles that are in your pews there. So you see this description. Now it's a, we have to unpack this a little bit. But what you're hearing is the description of Israel and Jerusalem's downfall. A little bit of background. Israel is this chosen nation in the Old Testament. In fact, it was such a chosen nation blessed by God that it was a superpower under several of its kings. King David was a military genius and he went out and he conquered the land surrounding Israel and established Israel as a military power. His son Solomon was an economic genius and was able to build up the economy of Israel to the point that it was not just a military superpower, it was an economic superpower. And everybody around saw and saw the glory and splendor of Israel and knew that that was part of their worship of Yahweh was one of the reasons why they were so blessed and that's why they were such a great power. But there's a twist to that story and some of you are familiar with that story. Israel had once been a great power under King David and King Solomon. But then they began to worship false gods and they worship other, other gods and idols. And they move away from the worship of Yahweh, the true God, and start entering into false forms of worship. And because of that, God needs to come and ends up punishing Israel for their sins of idolatry and false worship. So he sends the marauders from the north, first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. They come and they wipe out Israel. In fact, the only thing left is the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And so the Babylonians set up a siege around the capital city of Jerusalem, and they're getting ready to wipe out Jerusalem. But Jerusalem hangs on for several years. And so when they finally fall, the Babylonians are really mad. They're like, you guys just didn't give in. You had to hang out, and you wasted our resources for two years. So they really decide to go to town on Israel and wipe them out. So here's some of the things that they do. Brutal, brutal marauders. They would come down, and they would burn all the crops so that there was no food for the people to eat. But worse than that, they would take salt and salt all those fields so that it wasn't just affecting the crops for one year, but for two, three, four, multiple generations would not be able to farm that land because they just completely wiped out that land. They were brutal conquerors. And so they took all the able-bodied men, took them up into Babylon, into these kind of pagan cities and pagan areas, and they left behind only the women, the children, the weak, and the feeble, essentially wiping out Israel society, essentially wiping out their culture, their lands, and they moved from this great nation under David and Solomon into this nation that had completely fallen apart and were now considered exiles, refugees. In fact, you would consider them the poorest of the poor nations in the Middle East at that time. Now, we can look at this story of this downfall of Israel, and and maybe that's kind of our story in some sense as well. We can think maybe, okay, under 20, 30 years ago when the economy was humming along and, and everybody was a part of the, the dot-com boom and, and stocks were doing well and our 401k actually was a 401k instead of a 201k that it is now, we had resources and, and maybe many of us were, had nice homes and then we can look back and say, well, in the last six, seven years, those things have changed fairly dramatically. The number of foreclosures, the number of jobs that have been lost. And we can go back and say, well, those were the glory years, but right now things are tough. Things are tough. And one of the things that happens when we encounter tough times is that the way we think about how we relate to the world begins to change. So if you're living in terms of affluence and success and power and authority and privilege, then you think of the world as you're going to conquer the world. But then when you are not having those things, those good things, you start wondering about your place in the world. And so that was the situation that Israel was encountering in the book of Lamentations. They had once been a great nation, but they were now in this place of suffering and trying to figure out what is now our place in the world in the midst of struggle, in the midst of lost jobs, in the midst of lost relationships, in the midst of lost homes, all those things that had shaped their identity now taken away, what does it mean for them to be God's people in the midst of this? So the first temptation is actually found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. uh, To all those that carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease." Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord, for when it prospers, you too will also prosper. Now think about this for me, with me for a minute. This is Jeremiah chapter 29, found in page uh, 545 of your Bibles. In Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah comes to God's people and says, You are not allowed to give up. Because the temptation with a fallen nation is to say, We're done. We're going to bury our head in the sand. We're going to disengage. The world is too tough. It's too difficult out there. So we're going to just withdraw and hang out with our own people and not worry about what's going on in the world around us. But God actually comes through the prophet Jeremiah to the people and says, do not give up. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, and get this, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have sent you. Now, where they are now is not Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. Throughout the Bible, you'll see the phrase, seek the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, because that's God's heavenly city. But in this passage, it says, seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon, not of Jerusalem. So if you're seeking the peace and prosperity of Babylon, you're actually seeking the peace and prosperity of the evil world that is out there. So what God is saying to these people is, I know things are rough. I know things are difficult. I know this is not the best set of circumstances. But do not disengage. Do not say to the world, I'm done with you. But instead, engage the world around you. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have sent you. Seek the shalom, the peace of that city. I think this is an important lesson for us as 21st century Christians. Because I want to give you a quick history lesson. In the 19th century, the church was one of the most powerful and significant influence of change in American society. In fact, there's an author, uh, a Johns Hopkins professor by the name of Timothy Smith, and he wrote a book that talks about that in the 19th century, every time you saw major social reform, it was actually begun by the church. So the abolitionist movement was started by Christians. So Christians said, when we look at our Bible, slavery is wrong. We're going to stand up in the word of God, and we're going to stand against slavery. So the abolitionist movement was spearheaded by Christian leaders. The right for women to vote vote, started actually in basements of churches, where women would gather together in prayer groups, and then they would pray, and they would, and they would say, this is an injustice. And so it was church folks that started and initiated the right for women to vote. Child labor laws that got enacted that protected children from harms in in terms of industrialization. Guess who started that movement to protect children? Yes, it was the Christians. So if you look at every major positive social reform change in the 19th century... They are started by Christians who look at the word of God, see the injustice in the world, and say, we need to do something about the problems, whether it's slavery, whether it's women's rights, or it's the rights of children, we want to do something about it. So we look at 19th century Christianity as those who were Christians who were actively engaged in the world and seeking to change the world for the better. But something happens in the 20th century. In fact, a, a historian by the name of Moberg, Douglas Moberg, says, What you see in the 20th century is the great reversal. So, a generation earlier in the 19th century, Christians were actively involved in changing the society. In the 20th century, Christians began to withdraw from society. A lot of different factors. One, they felt that the secular institutions were becoming more secular and more humanistic. They were following, you know, they're teaching evolution in our school, schools. They're teaching science that goes against our understanding of the world. So the Christians are looking at the world around them and saying, I'm not sure I want to be a part of that. So Christians began to withdraw from the world. And instead of actively seeking to change the world, Christians say, we want to have nothing to do with the world. And so this is when you see what we call now the great reversal, disengaging from the world around them. So these Christians in the early part of the 20th century in particular begin to form what we would now call a Christian subculture because the world is evil, right? The world is, uh, is secular, it's humanistic. We want to have nothing to do with that world. So we form our own culture separate from the world out there. So the world has these secular universities that teach evolution. Well, we're going to start Christian colleges that don't teach those things. Well, the world has these secular newspapers and journals and periodicals well, though we don't want to read those, we want to start reading Christian periodicals and journals. Well, the world has its secular music. We don't want to listen to that secular music. So we're going to make a rip-off version of it called Christian music. And it sounds exactly like it, but we changed the words around just a little bit. And now we've got a Christian version of secular music. And then you get secular T-shirts, and now we got Christian T-shirts. I remember in high school, um, a lot of my friends had these kind of beer emblem T-shirts. I don't know if any, they still are popular, but they used to have uh, a T-shirt that took the Budweiser label and just put Budweiser, king of, the, king of the beers, and just there was kind of this T-shirt that all these high school wannabes, wannabe cool kids wore these T-shirts. So it was to show, hey, you know, Budweiser, king of beers, etc. Now, a Christian looks at that and says, that's so secular, that's so evil. Let's bring a Christian version of it. So they take exactly the same logo, all the font is the same. They just change the word Budweiser to Jesus, and they change the word Jews to beer. So now, kids are walking around with Jesus, King of the Jews, but in Budweiser font. (laughs) So what you see is you're developing a Christianized version of the secular society. You're saying, we want to have nothing to do with the world out there, We're just going to withdraw and form our own little subculture. Where you see this is actually in architecture, where if you look at churches, especially in the Midwest, that were built in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s, and the East Coast churches are built a little earlier, and the West Coast churches are built a little later, but in the heart of this time period, where the church was saying we want to have nothing to do with the evil world out there, this kind of architecture is very common. So, not a church like this, which is a more recent uh, 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 building, but if you go to churches built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, you will see a lot of churches with this architecture in their sanctuary. Kind of a slanted roof, a little bit of an arch on the side, maybe there are beams that are running across that kind of buttress the ceiling and and the roof, but this is a very common form of architecture. Now, I remember walking into these kinds of church buildings all over the place and thinking, this is really inefficient. I mean, even as like a kid, I knew this is really inefficient because when it's a, it's a cold winter's day and you walk into that sanctuary, what happens to all the warm air in that building? It rises up into the rafters and you are freezing to death on the ground and all the hot air is up there. And then they say, well, we can't have this. So they built ceiling fans and they push the hot air down. But that keeps all the charismatics out because they can't raise their hands in worship because the ceiling fans are going to... So you can't... You have these buildings... That are extraordinarily inefficient and make no sense whatsoever. So, why are churches built this way? Why are sanctuaries built this way with all this kind of inefficiency built into the sanctuary space? Well, it turns out there's actually a very symbolic reason for this. Because if you were to look up at that church building and turn that building upside down, what does that now begin to look like to you? It's the bottom of a boat. It's the hull of a boat, isn't it? It looks like a boat. So if you have it right side up, it's the sanctuary. If you turn it upside down, you're saying our church is a big boat. And where in the Bible do you hear about a big boat? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Now think for a moment what you say when you say your church is Noah's Ark. You're saying we don't care what happens in the world out there. They can get destroyed and the judgment waters come and wipe them out as long as we are safe in Noah's Ark. We've got a little microcosm of the world right here. We've got our animals, we've got our friends, our family. We're safe in Noah's Ark. We don't care what's going on in the world out there. That's why 20th century architecture reflects this great reversal. We just care about our family and friends here in Noah's Ark. Now, how do you do evangelism now? You throw out a lifeline, and you bring one person in occasionally, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, but you don't care about the society around you. You have disengaged from the world. But that's why the words of Jeremiah are so powerful when he says, seek the peace and prosperity, not just of Noah's Ark, your church, not just the people you hang out with, but seek the peace and prosperity into the world that I have sent you into into a world that some might consider to be evil and fallen and and sinful, but seek the peace and prosperity and well-being of that city into which I have sent you into. So that's why the book of Lamentations is so powerful, because in the midst of this suffering, Lamentations calls us not to run away from suffering, but to put ourselves smack dab in the middle of that suffering. This is a very powerful example for us to follow, because as Christians, we like to run away from those kinds of things. In fact, church history, again, reminds us that in, in, uh, in the period of urbanization in the 20th century, there was a phenomenon known as white flight, where whites felt the city was no longer a safe place to live, because African Americans were moving in from the south into the north. And these new immigrants were coming in from southern and eastern Europe, and we don't know what they're all about, and they're coming into the major urban centers. So in a place like Chicago, you see this massive exodus of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants saying, we don't want to live in this dangerous city anymore. We want to go hide out in the suburbs. So our history is working against us. That's our history as a church. We move away when we disengage when trouble, conflict, and difficulties arise. But Lamentation teaches us that even in the midst of suffering, even when you've lost everything, the response is not to disengage, but actually stay in the middle of that suffering. You'll see this in chapter 2, verse 11. The passage that I read describe this horrible, horrible condition that Israel is in. But this is the response of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 11, My eyes fail from weeping and I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. You'll notice this image here of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's nickname is actually the weeping prophet. Some of you might know this. Jeremiah among all the prophets is one of my favorite because he's such a real person engaging in real suffering. Stories told of a non-believer who goes to this great cathedral in Europe. And she walks in and she sees all these amazing murals, this stained glass all around this building. And she's not impressed with any of these pictures, not impressed with Jonah and the whale, not impressed with Isaiah and all his writings. But the one image that sticks in this non-believer's mind is the image of Jeremiah, hand, uh, 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 head buried in his hands, on his hands and knees, weeping and wailing for the lost of the city. That's the image that strikes home. And I, I think right now, the world sees that Christians are trying to be right all the time. But they don't see us weeping and wailing and crying over the lost. In fact, I would, I, would, I would go so far to say is that we have no problem being right. We know what it takes to be right. We spend a lot of energy as Christians trying to prove how right we are. But do we weep, wail? and show love to others it's easy to be right it's harder to be loving Uh, i'll give you an illustration of this i passed through the church as i mentioned Uh, the church was right in between harvard and mit and uh, boston university and tufts university so we had a lot of college students in our church and after a few years these college students graduate they decide to stick around in the church they become young singles and the inevitable happens they meet each other they like each other they end up getting married So, for about a four-year time period, I did like every other day was a wedding uh, ceremony. I did like 60 weddings in a four four or five-year time period. Now, you got to remember this is one church, so we're all attending each other's weddings. So, I have to do 60 new sermons every time we go to these weddings. So, I mean, as a pastor, I'm just running out of stuff at that point. By the the 20th wedding, I can't, how many times can I preach on 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind? I'm just running out of material halfway through. And so I said, I'm just going to start making stuff up. I don't care. (laughs) So at one particular wedding, I asked the bride and groom to come up to the front, and I say to the groom, I want you to turn around and say to everybody here, I will always be right. I will never be wrong. And this fool turns around and says to everybody in the congregation, I will always be right, I will never be wrong. I say, great. Now I turn to the bride and I say, I want you to turn around and say to everybody, I will always be right and I will never be wrong. And she turns around and says, I will always be right and I will never be wrong. So I say to both of them, fantastic. You have declared before God and all these witnesses that you will always be right and you will never be wrong. Both of you are going to be right all the time. So I have solved every marital spat you're going to have for the rest of your lives. Why? Because both of you are going to be right all the time. So the fight is not over who is right or wrong. The fight is over who gets to be more loving. So wouldn't that be amazing testimony to marriages if you fought over not who's right or wrong, but who gets to be more loving. The world has seen enough of people that are right all the time. Christians are right all the time. We are not loving all the time. And that's what Lamentations offers to us. A broken heart, a contrite spirit, someone who is so pained by the suffering around him, he says, I weep and wail for the lost. Is that not our calling as believers? To weep and wail for the lost. My hope is that as believers, when we engage the city, especially as a church that's right here in the heart of the city, that you will now have an opportunity to be those who weep and wail for the lost. One of my favorite uh, theologians is someone by the name of Walter Brueggemann. If you ever get a chance to read any of his writings or articles, please just take a little moment to read some of his stuff. Phenomenal stuff. Walter Brueggemann has this uh, passage in a, a chapter in a book called Peace where he describes the difference between the theology of those who have good things and a theology of those who have not, the haves and the have-nots. And he argues that the haves develop a theology of celebration, because they celebrate the good things that they have. But the have-nots develop a theology of suffering, because they don't have those good things, so they suffer through life. And what happens is that your worldview is operating differently between the haves and the have-nots, Those who are in celebration versus those who are suffering. So in the left-hand column, you're seeing the theology of celebration. So because you have good things, you know how to manage and steward your resources. I can always tell a church that is a church in celebration because they have workshops on estate planning or managing your finances. Well, because you have finances, this is to manage. The world is generally a good place because, well, you have good things in the world. Life is already healthy, it is whole, it is is complete. And God, therefore, becomes a nurturing kind of maternal figure that takes care of you because you already have those good things. And you want things to stay that way. You want the status quo to remain. You don't want your tax rates to go up. You want things to be the way they are. Now, if you are those who don't have those things in the place of suffering... You're not managing resources, you don't have those resources, so you think in terms of survival, making it day-to-day, uh, dollar-to-dollar. The world is not a good place because you don't have good things in the world, it is an evil place. The, uh, life is not already whole, you need someone to come and deliver you from the world that is the difficult place. So that's why sometimes the Psalms feel a little schizophrenic. You see God who kind of nurtures and and brings you under the shadow of His wings, and then in the next chapter you hear about, Lord, come and smite all your enemies. Well, that's because of the difference between if you're in that good place, you want God to nurture you. If you're in that bad place, you want God to come and rescue you. You need God to be a warrior, a masculine kind of uh, powerful figure to come and smite all your enemies. And so you don't want the status quo. You want to fight injustice. So Bruggemann argues that In the celebration uh, theology and suffering theology, you see kind of two different elements of understanding the world, a worldview. Now, the the problem is that those who are in the place of celebration oftentimes think it's their responsibility to go and dump their resources on those who are in the place of suffering, that that's the task. Let me explain this another way. Um, Let's take a hypothetical. Uh, we drive to, uh, up the North Shore, if you're, if you're in the suburbs of, of Chicago, we drive up to kind of the more affluent neighborhoods on the North Shore, if you've got Glenview, or these very nice homes up on the, up the lake uh, on the, on the uh, Chicago suburbs. And we go to one of these gated communities, and we knock on the door of one of these homes, and a 16-year-old answers. And we, answer, we ask her, hey, uh, we were asking questions about Christianity, well, what do you think heaven is going to be like? And this 16-year-old says, oh, heaven's going to be wonderful. Can you describe heaven for us? She says, heaven's going to be wonderful because, well, you know, here on earth, uh, my parents uh, bought me this tiny little 19-inch TV. doesn't get good reception. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a 70-inch plasma with surround sound and full satellite hookup. Now, here on earth, I've got this little Dell desktop that they got from Costco. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a Mac Airbook. So here on earth in the garage is this little Toyota Yaris, good mileage, but not a fun car. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a Ferrari. So to this 16-year-old living in an affluent Chicago suburbs, heaven is more of the good things she has on earth. Why? Because she has good things on earth. She can expect more of those good things. Now, let's take a supersonic transport machine and move to a very, very different neighborhood. Let's go to Darfur Sedan. And let's go to one of those refugee camps. And let's look for a 16-year-old. And there's a 16-year-old girl living in one of the refugee camps in Darfur, Sudan. And we ask her the exact same question. What do you think heaven is going to be like? And she'll say, heaven is nothing like what I have in this world. Nothing like it. Heaven is a place where my parents have not been killed by the Janjaweed. Heaven is a place where I'm not worried about getting raped every night. Heaven is a place where there's actually food and water available for me. Heaven is nothing like the world that I live in here. Now, the truth is, both are correct. Both have a little bit of the truth. Because heaven is going to be the good things we have on earth, more of it. But heaven also will be nothing like what we have here on earth. And we need to hear both of their stories to understand the fullness of Of God's plan for us we need both of their understandings of the world to understand the fullness of God's plan and vision and the problem as I said before is that those of us who have many good things feel like the people we go to don't have these good things and our job is to dump all our resources on their lives and we end up not learning from those who suffer because we spend so much time in celebration I think the challenge of the book of Lamentations is are you willing to engage in places of suffering, not to quickly turn it around so quickly that you forget about those places of suffering. One of the things I'm I'm learning about American Christianity is that we are addicted to artificial sweeteners. We are really addicted to artificial sweeteners because what it does is our lives are bitter in many ways. Many of us suffer. Many of us go through difficult times and our everyday lives are very difficult. But when we come to church on Sunday, we douse ourselves with artificial sweetener. And that's what we show to others, the sweetness of our lives, when we've just doused ourselves with artificial sweetener. And so we don't know what it means to be real and honest in our places of suffering. And all we end up doing is celebrating each other's good things, but never understanding and lamenting over suffering by others. I think the challenge for us as the church, especially an urban church, where you will encounter those who suffer. And the temptation will be, oh, you poor people, you need some more of this. You need some more of this. You need some more of this. Without realizing there is a life, a vibrancy, a spirituality that we desperately need in order to make our lives complete, not their lives complete. I'll close with this illustration. Um... As I mentioned, I was a pastor of an urban church for many years, and our church was intentionally diverse, intentionally focused on ethnic diversity. And so, I, 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 and one of the weeks, I did a sermon series on ethnic diversity and on racial reconciliation. How do we reconcile the different races that are in our church? And I was doing this sermon series, and I was running out of material. And this seems to be a common theme, I think. (laughs) I'm running out of material. And Pastor Jared has never done this, but I will confess to you that I came to a moment at about midnight on Saturday night before the next Sunday that I said, I have no idea I'm going to close this sermon out. So I did what some pastors, not Pastor Jared, but what I confessed did, which was to go on Google and type in racial reconciliation sermon illustration and say, can Google, God, I pray to you that Google would give me the answers. (laughs) So... But Google would give me some answers. And guess what? Something popped up. I typed in racial reconciliation, sermon illustration, and an actual sermon illustration popped up. So I click on it, and it tells a story. It tells a story about a Supreme Court justice a few years ago, uh, actually in the previous dec- uh, century. Uh, and a Supreme Court justice had just been appointed to the Supreme Court, and he was, happened to be a Baptist, and he was going to move his membership to a church in the D.C. area. Now, the pastor and the church heard about this. They were all excited. Hey, guess who's coming to our church Sunday? The newly appointed Supreme Court Justice. The church is all abuzz. It's like saying next week, you know, Rahm Emanuel is going to be a member of... Okay, maybe not. Well, somebody somebody famous is going to join this church. You know, uh, President Obama is coming to become a member of the church. Everybody heard about it. It was a big buzz and all of that. So they were all excited that the Supreme Court Justice was going to be a member of this church. So that Sunday, they have this practice at this church where they invite all the newcomers to come up to the front, and they welcome them into the congregation. The illustration that I'm reading on the web is giving this story and saying, at the church that day, there happened to be a Chinese laundryman who was also being uh, welcomed into the congregation, and he was the first one to be called up. And he comes and he stands on one side of the altar. And then he said, the illustration goes on and says, about 10 or 11, 12 others were also being welcomed into the congregation, and they all come to the front, but guess what they do? They stand on the other side, far away from the Chinese laundryman. So this illustration goes on and says, but the last person to be invited up was the Supreme Court Justice. And he comes up to the front, and he goes and he stands right next to the Chinese laundryman, And that's where the sermon illustration ends on the Google search. And now let's acknowledge, first of all, that the Supreme Court justice did a good thing. He certainly shouldn't have done what the 10 or 11 people saying, I'm not going to stand next to that Chinese laundryman. I'm going to stand over here. So the Supreme Court justice did a good thing. But the problem with this sermon illustration was that it heaped praise on the Supreme Court justice, how he would lower and demean himself to stand next to the Chinese laundryman, And so the gift that the Chinese laundry man received by having the Supreme Court justice stand next to him, when actually I think it might have been the other way around, that the real gift was not to the Chinese laundry man, but to the Supreme Court justice, who got to stand next to one made in the image of God, who lived day to day as a struggle, as an immigrant, as an outsider, as one of the most marginalized people in his society, and still found time and energy and grace to come into God's house and worship. The gift was not for the uh, Chinese laundryman, The gift was for the Supreme Court Justice who got to stand next to one made in the image of God. As an urban church, as a church that's wanting to engage what's going on in the city, and you've kind of gone past the Noah's Ark stage, I hope, and you're saying, we want to serve the community, the children of this community, there would be a strong temptation to say, man, we have so much to give to these poor kids, or we have so much to give to these poor families. Aren't they lucky that we have showed up? When actually, the gift, you're the ones receiving the gift. To be in community, to learn from those who suffer, because all you know is the other part of the story. I challenge to this church, as you grow as a church, not just in number, but also in spiritual ways, what does it mean to learn from the communities around you not to just say, I'm going to go dump my resources on them, but the gift of receiving from those who are in places of suffering but still find the joy to worship the Lord. God, I thank you that you are at work in this community and in this congregation. I ask, Lord, that in the places for many of us of great celebration and joy, maybe even great abundance and affluence, and maybe we have so many good things, or maybe those of us who are suffering, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to find you in the midst of great joy, but also in the midst of great suffering. I pray for the gift of what it means to know you in the joys, but also in the pain. Thank you that you are God of both. Both praise and celebration, but also suffering and lament. We pray this in your name. Amen.